We're on a mission from God. Wendy? So I got that going. Darling? Looks like I picked the wrong week to quit sniffing blue. Light of my life. We enjoy your films. I am a human being. I thought they smelled bad. On the outside. Welcome to Vintage Video, where we're rewatching the 80s so you don't have to. We'll be reviewing every major film release of the 1980s in real time, overanalyzing what you've seen and spoiling what you haven't. I'm Patrick O'Reilly. I'm Jesse Bayless. And I'm Richard Wells. And today marks the 40th anniversary of the release of Battle Beyond the Stars on September 8th, 1980. It was written by John Sayles, based on a story by Sayles and Ann Dyer, directed by Jimmy T. Murakami, and released by New World Pictures. The working title was Battle Amongst the Stars and posters exist with this title. The working title was also recycled as the title for a prequel comic series that told of the adventures of Zed, Mel, and Dr. Hephaestus prior to the events of the film. George Pappard and Robert Vaughn's paychecks accounted for $1 million of the $2 million budget, mm-hmm. which is double huh. the budget of Corman's unreleased Fantastic Four feature film in the 90s, making it Corman's most expensive film to date. Wow. I have a question. Yes. Is this a parody movie? No. No, it's it's definitely inspired by The Magnificent Seven and by, you know, Seven Samurai. But... Well, I, I don't think it's... I, I wasn't I thinking it was a parody of that. I was thinking, if anything, it'd be a parody of, like, a Star Wars type movie. No, I don't think it's a parody. Yeah. I think, I you think, think it was a, an honest attempt at whatever it is. Yes, I do. Okay. Yeah. Just checking. It made back $1.7 million in its opening weekend and $11 million total, so it absolutely turned a profit. It was produced in Corman's own Venice studio by a small visual effects team headed by James Cameron, who was hired after impressing Corman with his student film Xenogenesis and then fired him off of the film multiple times during the production. <laughs> well, uh, which where's is, James? You fired him yesterday. We'll get him back in here. <laughs> and I think they continued that relationship through the production of Piranha 2, which I'm yeah. pretty sure James Cameron was also fired off of. Well, at least James Cameron got his a good working relationship with uh, James Horner. Yes. So James Horner could score Aliens. <laughs> That's true. And a couple other people because Bill Paxton was a carpenter on the set, and this is where he and James Cameron met. Oh, wow. <laughs> he, he also met Gail Ann Hurd on the set of this film, who he would later marry and collaborate with on Terminator and Aliens, which she produced. Footage from this film is reused in 1983's Space Raiders, also in StarQuest Two and Vampirella in the late 1990s, and somehow even in Corman's Fantastic Four film. (laughs) (laughs) Which footage was used there? (laughs) I have no idea. I mean, space footage of a spaceship, because there is stuff in space in Fantastic Four. But I've never actually sat and watched his movie all the way through. The only thing I think of would be the Hephaestus Station. Yeah. I I have it on the Plex. Uh, We could could watch it if we wanted to. I'm good, thanks. I'm not sure if we want to watch a Fantastic (laughs) Four movie that cost $1 million to make. But that was made because of rights issues, right? They needed to have a movie made? Fox said, how cheaply can you make this? Can you do it for under 10? And he was like, I can make it for a million. And they were like, what? (laughs) And he was like, I'll do it. And they're like, here's a million dollars. Make it. And then he made it, and they were like, this is terrible. We're never going to release it, but thank you. <laughs> it was just a million dollars, so no skin off our back. Uh, this you sure showed us. <laughs> <laughs> the Starship footage from this film could also be seen during the movie theater fight that ends the film Bachelor Party. Uh, the entire score was also reused for 1985's 
Wizards of the Lost Kingdom, which I think uh, it works as a fantasy score or a sci-fi score. Yeah, I actually really like James Corner's or James Corner's James Horner's score. Yeah, for this movie, we start the film seemingly coming out of warp speed with stars blurring past, and we get the title very quickly here ahead of any other names. We see Sater's ship as it slowly approaches Akir, which is described by one of Sater's men, a planet of stone with a single green spot. It's a farming planet, not unlike where Luke Skywalker started his films, but named Akir, presumably to call to mind the Seven Samurai director Akira Kurosawa, because the people of this planet are called Akirans. Right, but also we have a guy named Sater, and essentially, who is essentially Vader. Yeah, and we have, mm-hmm. and they the even Luke call Skywalker. him Lord Sater. Right. Yeah. I'm like, I don't. I, th- I was so certain this was going to be a parody of Star Wars no. because so much of it is so ridiculous that it couldn't <laughs> possibly have been done in earnest. <laughs> but uh, this planet has no defense capability, and their only spacecraft is an old weather ship which currently houses two crew members, reporting the weather to Akira from above. These men pick up Sater's ship on their instruments and try to open a line of communication, and in response, Sater orders them and their craft vaporized. <laughs> so now they have no ships. Down on the surface of Akir, people move about their daily lives in what looks like a large matte painting of the roots of human teeth. <laughs> Suddenly, the crystal alarm goes off, and Sater's ship enters the atmosphere with a broadcast. His disembodied head appears as a projection, like Wizard of Oz or something, and he demands subservience. He says that, I will rule over you, and you have seven risings to accept this offer. What I thought was, like he says, your harvest will begin in seven days. Oh, he's going to come steal all their crops. That's what he, he, he just wants the, the, their stuff so he can move on. It's like, uh, it seems like he just really wants to control this planet for some reason. Yeah. Well, that's what I was going to ask. Like I, throughout the whole course of this film, I don't understand his motivation. Like I get the idea of being, you know, some evil overlord that wants to rule the universe, but this planet is, is not a threat to you. Right. And we establish later that they have nothing of value. Right. So what is the point of, of attacking them aside from just being sadistic? Conversely, what is the use of resisting? If he's not actually going to do anything to your planet, if all he's going to do is say, I am like on paper, I am the ruler of this planet, but we don't then know. who cares? Because he doesn't lay out the terms, yeah. Yeah. He, you know, which is what I would say. It's like, you surrender or die. And I'm like, hey, wait a minute, I need to understand what are the terms of surrender because I, dying might be better. I don't know. That's true. The, the only thing that maybe is a hint and it comes way later is that he might be harvesting these people for, for body parts, for body parts yeah. so he can live forever. Oh, so when he says harvest, he didn't mean their crops. He meant their persons. Maybe. Uh, well, no, I think he says their harvest. Oh, well, but yeah, he could be, I might be- Your mis- harvest. Yeah, yeah, I might be misreading how he, what he means by that. Sater claims to have a stellar converter, which is essentially just Starkiller base. Yeah, it, um, it, but it, instead of instead of like sucking in a star. Yeah, it, it turns planets into stars. Yeah, <laughs> um, but it will destroy their planet if they don't agree to his rule, which seems counterintuitive. Again, if he needs, if he wants to. Yeah, it's like I want all the stuff in this store for free, and they're like, no, and he's like, fine, I'm gonna burn it to the ground, and it's like. You still don't have any of the stuff from so, the yeah, store. You're still losing out. And will will this act of of turning the planet into a star be a message to other people? 
and I don't know what the benefit of giving them seven risings to decide is either, but I never understand that in movies. But it's it's <laughs> just a callback to Seven Samurai when they come to collect the harvest from this village and the village is like, well, it's not ready yet. Yeah. You need to come back at this other time. And they're like, okay, well, we'll be back at that time and you better have everything for us. Uh, I also like uh, Lur from Omicron Percy. I ate on Futurama's ultimatum of we will raise the temperature of the earth by one million degrees every day for five days until our <laughs> demands are met. <laughs> five days. Uh, to punctuate the speech, Sater kills a few random Akirans as a demonstration. They just have like a sniper rifle on their ship and they're just like, pew, pew, pew. And just knock over four people. One Akiran in particular, Shad, the love child of Nicholas Holt and Jonathan Rice Myers, is shaken by the announcement. I was like, is this the guy? I thought it was it was the guy from Westworld at first. Oh, <laughs> Jimmy, Jimmy Simpson? Simpson? Yeah. I, there's a different character in here that I said looks like Jimmy Simpson, actually. I was considering not mentioning it on the podcast because it's so insulting. But <laughs> And I also couldn't help but think of the fish that I catch in Stardew Valley. I was like, oh, I caught a shad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think they're in Animal Crossing, too. I'm not sure. But shad here is our Luke Skywalker. Sater returns to... Umatil, where he has a promise to keep, uh, but he's going to be back here in seven days, or sorry, seven risings. The governing body of Akir meets around a table to discuss a plan of action. Plan A seems to be surrender, plus their religious text, the Vardi, is essentially a pacifist philosophy, so they can't fight back. Is it a religious text? Because they keep referring to it, and they never actually explain what it is well i think at the very least it's some sort of a code a code of ethics that they have that says don't fight back turn the other cheek yeah yeah i mean i understand what they the the meaning they have behind it but i actually thought it was some sort of god or god maybe i don't know but they never really explain what the vardy is but uh suddenly a plan b is emerging because zed an old and probably blind guy says that he's fought all of his life and he's prepared to continue fighting the first indication we get that he is blind is when uh, Seder's ship enters the atmosphere and everyone's looking up, but he's just looking straight ahead. <laughs> and I was like, what's wrong with this guy in the corner? Is he blind? And then he comes back later doing the same thing. I was like, oh, he actually is blind. Now I feel bad. I feel bad about making fun of Zed. But yeah, he's prepared to continue fighting for their planet. Shad offers to fight in Zed's place, and Shad's sister says that he's the only one who's qualified to fly Zed's ship although he's never actually left orbit with it. Sater's men said that the only ship here was the weather ship, so I guess they just didn't check the ground? Yeah. Or it was in a hangar somewhere hidden? Zed instructs Shad to take the ship to Dr. Hephaestus and tell him Zed sent you, if he's still operative. On the ship, Shad addresses the onboard AI system, Nell, and she takes her sweet time responding. I was hoping that she would just sound like Nell from that movie. Hey, in the wind. <laughs> But she sounds more like Joan Rivers' dot voice from Spaceballs. She's given him a lot of shit. She's pretty sassy. She has more attitude than anybody else in the movie. I like it. Uh, She and Shad trade barbs for a bit as he's flipping on all the switches to get the ship moving. Uh, Wait wait, wait a minute. Can we outrun him? We sure as hell can. I'll fight him. Not with you in the driver's seat. And James Horner's score as as the craft is lifting off is kind of an homage to the 2001 score. I 
And this is the ship that looks like the head of a racing snail yes. from Never Any Story. Really? Yes. I thought it was a giant pair of boots. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's what Patrick said, too. <laughs> the departing ship is spotted by a guard ship that Sater left behind, and Shad decides to outrun them rather than fire on them and give away their plan. But eventually, one of the bad guy pilots points out that they're leaving their post. To hell with orders! I want that ship! Remember Lobo? He disobeyed orders, and now Sador is wearing his left foot. So they turn around back to Akira. Yeah, I didn't realize when they said this originally that they literally meant that his left foot was like part of his body. Now I thought it was like a necklace or something. Yeah. (laughs) But I also, I like like the relationship between these two guys in the scout ship. Mm -hmm. Like... It's like ah, you're right. Yeah. <laughs> like they, they, they're they're so they, they they It seems like they go on missions all the time together. But the guy on screen right is the one where I was like, that guy kind of looks like Jimmy Simpson. Like specifically when he's made <laughs> up in uh, in Always Sunny as like one of the the like inbred cousin characters. Oh, yeah. Um, he just I, looks really weird. I think these guys look like the um the the creatures from the Twilight Zone episode, the Eye of the Beholder. Oh <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Nell mocks Chad a bit for his pacifist ways and compares him to Zed, and he reminds her that his mission is to find mercenaries, not kill people. But when he delivers this line, he sounds exactly like Bill Murray to me. Maybe specifically uh, Frank Cross, Bill Murray, when he says, "My job is to find mercenaries, and I'm not Zed." I should mention Zed's ship is a very organic design compared to everything else. It's all curves and swirls and kind of looks like the racing snail from Never Ending Story, which you said before, uh, but if it had rock and tits. Uh, <laughs> for sure the tits were Roger Corman's idea. Um, or actually, I think I read somewhere that James Cameron was like, so let me explain this ship to you and then just sell it to Roger Corman. He's like, and it has like giant boobs on it. And Roger Corman's like, sounds great. Just do a mock-up and we're fine. And you're fired. <laughs> and you're fired. Be here, but by the way, be here an hour early tomorrow. But you said I was, never mind. Uh, Shad reaches Hephaestus' ship and docks inside of it. It he, sounds like a disease after <laughs> Hephaestus. Uh, he, he tries to transmit a welcome to the ship, but gets no response. Inside in a laboratory, a scientist named Nanelia is working repairing robots. <laughs> the one that she's working on right now, she like has it plugged in playing a test song. Yeah, it's like her her, her, her like her iPod. She just yeah. put, pops in a tape. Yeah. <laughs> Bots by Dre. Uh, traversing the corridors of the ship, Shad is scooped up by a Roomba and restrained. <laughs> no, <laughs> like, it's totally the Ragnarok chair. Oh, yeah, it kind yeah. of is, yeah. <laughs> It uh, it rolls him up to the lab, and Nanelia asks who sent him, assuming this is an android she's never seen. And when she finally unshackles him to investigate his vocal circuits, he explains that he's not an android, and she's shocked by his warmth. And she's using, like, the most imprecise tool I've ever seen on these androids. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. it's just, it's enormous, and it's got this, you know, it's got, like, this one-inch rod coming out of it that just lights up. And I'm like, what are, what are you accomplishing with this <laughs> giant tool? Uh, she admits she's never seen an organic form besides her father, Dr. Hephaestus, and Shad and Nanelia ride the slower-than-walking Roomba craft <laughs> back to her father's quarters, and the sound of Vader breathing is for some reason used as the automatic doors here. Uh, Dr. Hephaestus kind of looks like a head on the top of a giant bullet until the panels open the front of the cone and they rotate out like a robotic trench coat flasher. 
Inside, instead of flasher dong, are machine parts. And Shad asks Hephaestus for help. And Hephaestus says, Look, the only thing I would enjoy more than assisting you on your mission is watching you fuck my daughter. <laughs> You're Please. paraphrasing a bit. Yeah, 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 but that's essentially that's essentially the conversation. He's like, I want to hear grandkids laughing in the hallways. Just fuck my daughter. Uh, Shad is surprisingly woke for 1980 and demands Hephaestus consider his daughter's opinion on this decision. <laughs> uh, Hephaestus has his robots fix up the conjugal suite. Yeah, this the robots' names are... Uh, leprous and skew, I think. A skew. A skew. Yeah. I don't know. It sounds like more disease names. And, <laughs> yeah. And, and Saunders is like his like assistant. I like Android. That guy. And every time like he tries to turn around to follow orders, uh, Doctor Hephaestus keeps continuing his yeah. run on sentence. <laughs> and even though it's a robot, you can tell it's getting impatient with him. We will have children here, Saunders. Noise, excitement, life. It will be quite a change, sir. <laughs> this is very much the Mr. Burns Smithers relationship. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Shad tells Nanelia about how plant life on a cure changes with the seasons, and she seems to know all about it. Chlorophyll content. And he goes, whatever. No, I will not make out with you. <laughs> <laughs> but then somehow seconds later, he mentions wind, and she's like, wind? Wind? Like there was no mention of wind in the complete encyclopedia of human knowledge. That well, she well she's memorized. always pronounced it wine. She's never heard it spoken. <laughs> oh, she's been reading it this whole time. Is that like wine? I stole that joke from Family Guy. I'm sorry. <laughs> Shad launches into describing some sort of Cinco Añera ceremony that some random species has where they keep their kids in bubbles until they turn five. And uh, <laughs> Nanelia sees that uh, Shad is very insistent on returning home and orders the nearest eavesdropping android into the captor grid. And he's like, I must warn you, Miss Nanelia, that will cause the captor grid to short circuit. She's like, yeah, do it. So he steps into it, and lasers erupt in all directions, and the doors just slide open for them. Shad invites Nanelia along for the ride, but she can't accept. While and then he comes anyway. <laughs> yeah. While he leaves, uh, we see Nanelia thinking in her lab for a moment before she grabs her Xbox or whatever and follows Shad's ship in a second pod. Shad and Nanelia chat for a bit over the radio, and Nanelia's discouraged to hear a woman's voice in Shad's ship, but he doesn't explain that it's, like, the voice of the ship. He's just like, oh, that's just Nell. And she's like, oh, like, I guess you're taken. Whoops. On board his ship, Sater is informed that the emissary he dispatched to Umatil has returned with a reply to his offer. One of the henchmen hands him a small leather satchel. What's this? It is our emissary, sir. powdered him <laughs> and then Sater just slaps it in the guy's face and throws powder all over him it's so great it's like the end of Big Lebowski <laughs> I was just gonna say that covered uh, in emissary get it yeah. up get it up I love uh, I love the use of the word powdered as a verb <laughs> yeah uh Sater plans to use his sun gun on them uh and he insists that there will not not be a trace left not even their dust Shad and Nanelia are moving through the Lambda Zone when an intergalactic General Lee is chased into their path. It's an older-looking ship, and it has a huge Confederate flag on one side, and it's under fire from four smaller ships called Jackers. Basically, this is, a, this is an intergalactic trucker being chased by four people trying to rob him. And the pilot of the General Lee is drunk at the controls, and he's just singing... Sixteen gamblers to carry my coffin... 
uh, the cowboy captain puts on a very lackluster SOS. This is Space Cowboy. SOS. Help! <laughs> like, he doesn't even really care if anybody <laughs> helps him. Nell reminds Shad that the Vardy allows for murder in defense of an innocent person. And Shad doesn't have the balls to kill these guys anyway, so Nell just takes the shot for him. But Shad is furious. He's like, what? How dare you? That's that's not acceptable. That which is not organic must not harm that which is. I know, I know. It's a damn stupid rule. It's pretty clear that a computer this advanced would never actually be hamstrung by Asimov's laws. Mm-hmm. They would just be like, oh, no, I'm going to do this because I'm going to do it. Together they take out all the small ships and uh, the cowboy is invited aboard. But so when they shoot all the ships, he says, All right, for our side. Yeah. yeah. But like, he hasn't actually been introduced to this yeah. guy yet. He has no idea if they're on the same side. He yeah. just knows that somebody shot the ship shooting him. That's true. He doesn't seem very interested in helping them, though, when he learns that they're up against Sator. He never quits. You fight Sator, and you've got a snowball's chance in hell. Shad suddenly gets a communication from Umatil. And he sees the stellar converter in action as Umatil is destroyed by the sun gun or the, the stellar converter. Um, doesn't think about the fact that the girl is gone now. <laughs> like, she's just missing in action. Well, he, he said to wait in the Lambda Zone. And I guess, so he just continued on. Yeah. But we don't know where he's going yet. Yeah, and he never, like, thinks to get back to her. She just shows up again eventually. But the cowboy explains that Umatil was his customer, and now he has a ship full of weapons that are all paid for, and he has no planet to deliver them to. So Shad says that they should take them to Akir, and that he should teach the Akirans how to use them, because he owes Shad his life. And he's like, oh, great, yeah, I guess I'll do that. Uh, In exchange, cowboy offers to show Shad his VHS collection of old westerns, including Custer's Last Stand, to give him an idea of what he's getting into. Because he seems like he's just a nostalgic cowboy character and mm. he's obsessed with old Western movies. He he is from Earth, but it, it paints a larger picture that Earth is part of a larger now planetary galaxy right. group. Yeah. That we're traveling from one place to another and like there's just many, many, many other planets out there. Yeah. Uh, Nanelia's pod floats through a shambling color out of space. And is very badly damaged in the Lambda Zone. Inside her pod, it's filling with smoke because of shorting electronics. And the small pod is swallowed whole by a Vesica Pisces. And she wakes up strung to the ceiling in a ship made entirely of milk crates and smoke machines. <laughs> uh, she's approached by a Sleestack who informs her that she was just about to be digested by a Zyme. Which sounds like some kind of shitty alcoholic LaCroix. <laughs> Luckily, she was saved by this Gorn, Station, and Conan the Barbarian, whose real names are Cayman, the lizardy guy, the Kelvins, Urim and Thunim, bald gnome twins who communicate via heat, and Quopeg, my cooner, likely a reference to Queequeg the harpooner. Cayman mm-hmm. <laughs> suggests he might sell her, and then when she mentions the upcoming battle for Akir, she lies that they have molybdenum deposits. And Cayman knows Akir well and laughs at her bullshit. She mentions Seder and suddenly Cayman springs to action. He's like, oh, cut her down, release the Zyme. We have to go to Akir right now. Because he hates Seder and didn't realize that he was still alive and is desperate to kill him. We see Cayman's ship from the outside and I don't see anything being released into space. So I'm convinced he made up the Zyme so that she would be grateful. <laughs> suddenly Shad's well, I think that was ship. the creature that, that he blew up. The color out of space thing. He blew that up? Well, he shot at it. 
I mean, whether whether or not it it well, either way, it, they said that they had it captured and they were bringing it back to digest it. Oh, and then he says release the zyme as they're turning around. Okay, so well, I, I assumed that that's what he was talking about. They didn't have the effects budget to show this thing again. Yeah. Suddenly, Shad's ship is being pursued by a large glowing ship, and Shad is beamed aboard. We have a team of all-knowing precogs sitting around in a circle. They're dressed in all white, and Shad threatens them with his blaster until they force him to point it in his own face with their minds. <laughs> uh, they admit that they knew he wouldn't shoot because he's a pacifist, and he's like, You read my mind? Among other things. What else did they read? <laughs> did they find my fanfic? <laughs> they explain that they know everything and they're bored, so they want to go on this adventure with him. They, by the way, are Nestor. They share a consciousness, and four out of five of them are required to operate the ship. We always carry a spare. They hand him a champagne glass of what I can only assume is Venusian Thunder Ripple, <laughs> and uh, the, we cut to the men guarding a cure. Uh, watching from above as a wedding ceremony is taking place on the surface they think the lady officiating is cute and make plans to abduct and rape her <laughs> uh, <laughs> this is again where we get we touch on their 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 relationship with each other it's like it'd make you happy wouldn't it yeah it's like, yeah <laughs> all right let's do it <laughs> shad is now headed to nescosto uh in search of mercs which is uh where nell tells him he can find them on the surface of the planet, in a terrible thunderstorm, he tries to lift a manhole cover when a thunderblast throws him backwards into a hole. And inside of it, he finds a dial-a-drug machine and nearly <laughs> takes a pill that falls out of it. Like, he, he picks it up and holds it to his mouth on the last second. He's like, nah, I shouldn't just take a random yeah. drug. <laughs> uh, and then near that, he tries his hand at a dial-a-date machine and gets catfished by this decrepit robot covered in cobwebs <laughs> and stains of time. As he backs away from that, a blaster is fired past him. From a throne room full of treasure. And the merc here, Gelt, tells Shad that he's the last of the mercenaries because their organization was dissolved by some giant space conglomeration. Shad offers Gelt food and shelter in payment to fend off the invasion. And Gelt makes the point that he already has everything a man could want. Plutonium, cadmium, qualine crystals... I've been very well paid for my work. Shad is like, okay, well, fuck you then, I guess. If you yeah. don't want if you don't want my shit. But Gelt is like, oh, you don't understand. I sleep with my back to the wall when I can sleep. I eat serpents seven times a week. <laughs> which which is his weird coded way of saying that this money is useless because I can't spend it anywhere. So a meal and a place to hide are everything I need. Shad doesn't seem to notice or care that Nanelia has been gone for days now. As they leave Nosk nas costco <laughs> that's what my note says i'm pretty sure it was nicosto but maybe it was nas costco <laughs> as they leave nas costco shad shows his receipt to the lady at the door <laughs> uh, they are suddenly being pestered by another small craft this team is being forced together faster than the justice league yeah shad's ship is hit with a blank and Nell warns him to put up shields multiple times before he does. Presumably, she has the power to do that herself, since she's authorized to fire without his permission. Yeah. Uh, he refers to this annoying ship as a male or man so many times that there was no question in my mind the captain would eventually be a woman. She comes up on the screen after a second blank is fired and says, I am Saint X-Men of the Valkyrie, and I have counted coup upon you. 
Count, <laughs> counting coup for those unfamiliar with something Native Americans used to do in battle to to prove harmlessly that they were capable of victory. Often this meant simply touching the enemy or leaving evidence of their presence while the enemy slept. But Shad assumes that Gelt is more than he needs to defeat Seder and tells this girl to fuck off repeatedly. Yeah, he's super mean to her yeah. and I mm-hmm. don't get why. Like she's into him and she wants to help him fight. Yeah. Um. Also, <laughs> I just don't understand how she found him. Yeah. Like N- Nestor, like, okay, I can see Nestor is kind of being somewhat all-knowing, like maybe we're getting around, but this this woman just shows up. Yep. Yeah. And just by like, coincidence. Where, where did she even come from? Shad calls up the gangster of love on his radio and he asks for a meeting in the lambda zone and so uh space cowboy nestor and shad cruise along side by side and then gelt pulls up to join the line uh, if the cowboy is han solo i would say gelt is boba fett i'm not sure oh uh, yeah if boba fett was a good guy uh Nanelia introduces cayman as she returns and he is also welcome to the team and the Valkyrie woman is still following, but hasn't been extended an official invite. She's just sort of like drifting behind them. And they're like, just ignore her. Maybe she'll go away. <laughs> it's like, what is your problem? Uh, they all head to Akir. I, I like <laughs> when Cowboy or I can't remember who, who questions about Nestor. It's like, we are Nestor? It's like, and Shad's like, oh, I'll explain it all to you when we get yeah. there. <laughs> uh, but they all get to Akir and uh, the guard ship suddenly identifies seven approaching ships and they leave to tell Seder, but Gelt very quickly catches up with them and destroys them. Uh, he blows them up in space. The woman they abducted to rape is still on the ship, and she runs onto the bridge and fiddles with the controls so they can't get away from Gelt. <laughs> and then the ship is blown to shreds. Yeah, MVP right there. Yeah. I like how Nestor's ship looks like a glowing jellyfish. Like, it's even half transparent mm-hmm. uh, against space. But then uh, everyone lands on the surface of a cure, including the the Valkyrie woman. They're just like, I guess you're here now. Thanks for coming. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But uh, everyone's hiding from the new faces for a moment before coming out to apologize because the people of this planet are understandably shaken after the appearance and rampage of a different alien very recently. Space Cowboy pours himself a drink using the soda fountain on his belt buckle. Nanilia tells them that they've got a day and a half before the Malmori come back. That's Seder's people. They'll be outnumbered, but if they can destroy the solar converter or stellar converter, then they should be good. At least the planet should be safe. She gives a presentation about where and when they will have to strike to destroy the stellar converter. And the Akirans are able to terraform their planet by drumming on colored crystal rods in a laboratory. So they dig these huge trenches with this technology. Not clear exactly the purpose of these trenches. I mean, I guess... Anticipating ground troops? Yeah, but... I mean, how do you know where they're going to land? Yeah. Why Uh, wouldn't they land it in the middle of the city that they already fired on? Yeah, exactly. For dramatic effect. It's like when they dropped all the troops on the opposite side of the planet uh, in In uh, Phantom Menace. Yeah. It's like, like, why did you do that? Why did you just put them right in the city? Nanelia and St. X-Men, like, flirt... (laughs) Yeah, and I was like, because she, because Nanelia seems super into like wanting to spend quality time with Saint X. Yeah, she's like all giggly and bubbly yeah. when she's talking to her. But Saint X Men is just talking up what she's gonna do to Shad when she's alone with him. Yeah, uh, but she's like, I would recharge his capacitors, stimulate his solenoid, tingle, dingle, dangle, prangle his transistors. You know, sex. 
Nanelia is fascinated by this talk, and X-Men offers to teach her everything. Sater tries to reach out to the guard ship, but they get no response, and Sater assumes that they're just idiots who crashed their own ship mm -hmm. because nobody is dumb enough to take sides against him, uh, which they also didn't do. They were just destroyed. Nanelia takes Shad aside and asks for sex education, and he explains that on this planet, procreation requires two people. She wants him to teach her personally, and he says, Maybe I could show you the ropes. I have to assume the pause here was an intentional reference to the ropes he plans to shoot all over her for science. <laughs> wow. I mean, that's what that means, right? When you say, I could show you the ropes. <laughs> uh, that, that is honestly a phrase that I've never heard before you <laughs> Explained said it. it to you? <laughs> yes. Uh, does your species have kissing? Oh, yes, we have that. She interrupts a sudden makeout sesh to inform him that his torque bar has slipped its groove and will need to be replaced. The full team sit around listening to Cowboy's harmonica playing. The, uh, <laughs> the two Kelvin guys are sitting back to back on the floor acting as a campfire. Yeah. They're literally <laughs> cooking hot dogs on the heat coming off of these two characters. <laughs> two kids in a corner ask Gelt if he's bad. Out of nowhere, they just wander up and they're like, hey, so are you evil? And he's like, what? Yeah, I guess I'm, 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 kinda, pretty, I'm, I'm pretty, pretty evil. evil. <laughs> uh, leave me alone. Uh, the crystal alarm goes off again and everyone rushes to position. Cowboy asks the woman in charge of a cure to run away with him. And she says, well, Seder's probably close enough that he would see our ship leaving. So we can't leave together. And he says, oh, well. And then he empties his colostomy bag through his belt buckle and <laughs> chugs it Waterworld style. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe this is something else that just looks like urine. St. X-Men demands that Sater leave, and he does. Credits. No, he doesn't uh, listen to St. X-Men here. Sater's men fire on X-Men's ship, and she leads them behind an asteroid where two of the other good guy ships are waiting to blow them away. Shad gets the kill shot here, and Cayman starts firing on the mothership. Sater releases three more small ships. This is a shot we'll see a few times yeah. in this battle. He releases three ships from, from underneath his ship. And all three of these are taken out very quickly. Suddenly, a nuclear missile has locked onto Shad, so he leads it back to Sater's ship and crashes it, like, full-on into one of the rockets on the back of his craft, but mm. doesn't really do anything. Gelt's ship is beginning to fill with smoke, and Shad asks if he's okay, and it looks like his ship explodes because he got hit by these guys. Cowboy is down on the surface, still training Akirans in the use of the weapons surplus, and... They are firing down the corridors that they dug in the desert with that terraform technology at just a bunch of ground troops that are coming yeah. at them from every direction. After losing several fighters, they drop a rock in the path to stop the bad guys, which probably should have been there the whole time. Mm -hmm. Sater's ground troops start using a sonic weapon that makes Akiran ears bleed, and the Kelvin offer to take on the troops single-handedly because they don't have ears so they can survive this weapon. They jump out in front of Sater's tanks and radiate heat hot enough to kill the tank and some of the troops. And then they collapse to the ground cold because they used all of their energy. They are rushed by the allies into the protein tanks, mm -hmm. which is where they put people to recover, I guess. <laughs> or, or, or to make Soylent Green. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That. <laughs> Quick, put them in the protein tanks before they rot. Our troops will need meat. Uh, <laughs> it's back on the menu, boys. <laughs> <laughs> the Akirans fire rapidly on the baddies. Quopeg the Cooner throws what I can only assume is called a harcoon through, <laughs> through two bad guys. Zed jumps out with a cane and gets killed to death. Uh, 
That's what I put here. Uh, Nell gets weird. She receives a transmission. I received a transmission. What is it? Said the Corsair has ended. Which I think is code for my owner has died. Yeah. But that's Zed is officially dead and somehow she got the message. She seems upset about it, but I don't remember anyone referring to him as a Corsair before now. Uh, Shout apologizes. They do do refer to the ship as a Corsair. Okay. Shout apologizes. He was... He was the last of the great ones, she says. Shad walks through a collection of injured Akirans while X-Men brags about her kills in battle until Shad turns and says, this isn't our way, you know, we're not all about killing. And she says, basically, she's she's a Valkyrie. She's like, you know, the Vikings. They, they, they want to die in battle or that's how they get to Valhalla. And uh, uh, Shad gets to Gelt just as he's dying here and instructs his men to bury Gelt with a full meal because that was the deal that he made a full meal and a place to hide but even as they're burying him here he's clearly breathing so i have a feeling if they dig him up later some of this meal's gonna be gone yeah uh as soon as shad left uh they for sure said we're not doing that right (laughs) we're not cooking a whole meal and then burying it here as a symbol somehow one of the nesters has been planted on satyr's ship i don't remember how they did this well yeah they it, it the plan i guess was to allow him to be captured right or or they put him in a situation where he would be captured so that Seder would attempt to torture him right um, i don't know how they knew all this was going to happen yeah it, the the plan this is this is the plan allow one of the nesters to get captured so he dies while being tortured so that Seder will cut off his arm and then use it for his own arm so they could take control of it yeah, how did they know he needed a new arm? I mean, I guess they know everything, and this guy's constantly replacing his parts. Well, yeah, but, like, what if they replaced a foot or something? Was it just going to, like, kick him to death? <laughs> Which would have been kicking awesome. yourself. That would have been much yourself. better. <laughs> I would have loved to see that scene. But, uh, yeah. we Where it just we, starts kicking everyone on the ship. Stop <laughs> doing that. <laughs> we just opened the scene with Nestor on Seder's ship. And he's being treated by Deco, who is a torture expert. They're like, this guy is an expert at keeping people alive so he can torture them. Is like, oh, he's dead. Okay, he's already <laughs> dead. Uh, so they so they cut off Nestor's arm and sew it onto Lord Sater. And uh, it turns out the Nestors can control Lord Sater's new arm from here, Doctor Strangelove style. So they just grab a dagger that they can somehow see. Mm-hmm. I don't know how they can see it. And uh, they try to slit his throat with it until Daco. Uh, can come back in and wrestle the knife away and then cut the arm off again before it can murder him. Shad and Nanelia take on Sater's ship alone, and as Sater launches a bunch more tiny helpers, we get the same shot again of three ships coming out of the bottom. Nestor fires repeatedly on Sater's ship until they are hit and eventually explode, so now the Nestors are dead. Sater turns on the stellar converter and points it at Akir, and this is where X-Men saves the day. She speeds directly at the solar converter like she's going to kamikaze into it. But then she pulls up at the last second and the guy chasing her goes into it and completely destroys the weapon. So they've saved the planet already. Yeah. At, at least from an air assault. It, it's still under attack by ground troops. But X-Men survives just long enough to self-destruct and take a couple smaller ships with her. Why? Yeah. I don't know. Just shoot them. You don't have to self-destruct. Yeah. And why not self-destruct close enough to Sater's ship? Right. To do or just crash to it. into it. Right. right. If you were planning to blow yourself up, you know, 
take take out the entire ship with you. If you weren't planning to blow yourself up, you should go on to other great battles. Yeah. Like, isn't that your goal? Like, don't just die because you you successfully beat one guy. Yeah. yeah. See, Admiral Holdo knew what it was all about. Don't talk about that scene. <laughs> that scene's stupid. That should have been Leia. A thousand times it should have been Leia. Cayman actually phones in to Seder on his ship and says, Hey, it's me, Cayman. I'm a Lazuli, and I plan to avenge my species by killing you. And Seder's like, Oh, a Lazuli. I thought I killed all of those, but I guess I missed one. I guess I'll kill you now. Yeah, because Seder was in retreat. Right. And he was going to, like, regroup. But then he saw that, oh, this guy's around? Oh, I better better hold off on that. Uh, A quick blast during a dogfight sends cowboy hurdling towards akir because now he's back in his ship and trying to participate in the fight but he gets hit and so he's crashing back to the planet just solemnly playing his harmonica in the ship cayman moves under Seder's ship and fires a bunch but does very little damage and is killed very anticlimactically yeah i feel like this shouldn't have happened because like he was just like oh i missed one of you oh i guess i'll kill you and then he successfully does it yeah. it's just like there now i killed all of those things bucket list yeah Sater moves to tractor beam Shad's ship into theirs, and Nell is temporarily disabled, having lost memory in the fight. Nell gives them 30 seconds to get to an escape pod before she kamikazes into Sater's ship. Evidently, she learned how to count from Sergeant Thor and Galaxina because she's skipping numbers all over the place as she does this <laughs> final countdown. And I don't know why you would trust as she's skipping numbers that she'll ever get to the right number to, you know, explode. Because For a while, she's counting up. Yeah, yeah. Like, like, this maybe is she's not gonna never going to get there. You should stick around to make sure this happens. <laughs> don't just shoot off into space and expect her to successfully complete her mission. I mean, if she's using a random number generator, she should get there eventually, right? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, it kind of reminded me of, um, did you guys ever play the game, uh, or hear, hear the game, the Starship Titanic? No. Uh-uh. It was a game, like, created by Terry Jones. Oh, okay. And Douglas Adams. I want to play this yeah, game. Yeah, it sounds it's, interesting. <laughs> it's really weird. But in it, there's a bomb. And when you go to the bomb, it says, click here, you know, press here to disarm the bomb, which actually arms it. And it's, John Cleese is the voice of the bomb. <laughs> and and he's like counting down uh but he keeps like forgetting where he's at and so he keeps restarting the countdown over and over again uh so you, you basically have an infinite you part of the game is to disarm this bomb yeah but you don't actually have a time limit <laughs> you could just do he it. keeps forgetting yeah that's funny um it's a weird game for I sure i would still like to play it with you do you have this game uh i do i don't know if it'll uh, how well it will run on modern computers. This is like maybe mid 2000s. <laughs> All of Seder's bridge erupts in sparks and he expresses a regret about not living forever. Yeah, he's so upset. He's like, but I want to live forever. Yeah. <laughs> Who wants to live forever? I, I thought of that song yeah. as well. Uh, before the explosion kills the bridge and Seder together. Nanilia mourns their losses and Shad explains to the Akira nobody dies until the good they have done is over credits no <laughs> no one's ever really gone <laughs> yeah so it's just like they saved the planet so as long as the planet's here they'll still have they'll still be alive and and potentially the kelvin are still alive right potentially i guess i mean they went to be recovered they went to get like medical attention protein. or eat protein <laughs> we don't we don't know for sure <laughs> yeah and that's the end of our film here 
seems like it cost about $2 million. <laughs> Our director, Jimmy T. Murakami, uh, he was the rape director for Humanoids from the Deep. <laughs> he, he only directed rape scenes because Roger Corman was like, not enough rape, which I feel like Roger Corman also had a hand in this film a little bit. <laughs> This is a very sudden and unnecessary rape scene in the middle. Jimmy also directed Heavy Metal and a 2001 animated Christmas Carol starring Simon Cowell as Scrooge. Also director credit, not not a credit, uncredited directing from Roger Corman here. Uh, he's obviously the world's greatest independent film producer. He ran American International toward the end and co-founded New World Pictures. He directed the original Little Shop of Horrors, The Trip, Gas, s- 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 <laughs> Uh, he was a producer for Death Race and literally hundreds of other great, ridiculous B-movies. Writer John Sayles, this was, we've just talked about him. This was his first, his first screenplay was Piranha in 78. Uh, this is his last of the three features for this year yeah, after Alligator. three of them in one year, man. Yeah, in a couple months even. But Alligator, Return of the Sakaka 7, and this. And next year, he'll have The Howling, again for Dante, and... Yeah, we went over this in our previous episode. Music was James Horner. He did Humanoids from the Deep also earlier this year. And uh, obviously he's done a lot of amazing soundtrack credits. Star Trek II, Crawl, Cocoon, Commando, Aliens, and American Tale. Willow, Land Before Time, Field of Dreams, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, Rocketeer, Braveheart, Casper, Apollo 13, Jumanji. He won an Oscar for Best Music and Best Original Song for Titanic. Richard Thomas was Shad here. He plays Bill Denbro in Stephen King's It TV miniseries. I forget which character that is. Uh, Bill. I think it's the <laughs> older brother of the kid that gets... Yeah, yeah. it is. Yeah. Uh, but he plays the adult version of Bill Denbro. Uh, he's also John Boy Walton on The Waltons. He was Walter Gaskell in Wonder Boys. And he played Frank Gadd very recently on The Americans. Robert Vaughn was Gelt. He plays Lee in The Magnificent Seven, an earlier remake of Seven Samurai, and he's basically the exact same character in that movie. I think some of his lines are even like word for word from The Magnificent Seven. Chalmers in Bullet, Senator Parker in Towering Inferno, Ross Webster in Superman 3. He plays one of those like angry mayor types Mm -hmm. uh, in a lot of stuff. He was also Baxter Kane in Basketball and General Stockwell on The A-Team. Uh, and he played Gordon Kane earlier this year in Hangar 18 for us. Well, it's nice that he had an A-team connection with uh, George Papar there. Yeah, they got to work again some more after this. Uh, John Saxon was Sater. He plays Lieutenant Thompson in Nightmare on Elm Street. He is Roper in Enter the Dragon. He's Lieutenant Ken Fuller in Black Christmas. And in another 1980 title we missed this year called Beyond Evil, which we'll have to touch on for its 41st anniversary. But it's another John Saxon appearance. Uh, George Pappard was Cowboy. He played Paul Varjak in Breakfast at Tiffany's. Zeb Rawlings in How the West Was Won. And Hannibal on the A-Team, also with Robert Vaughn, obviously. And uh, he's also Denton in Damnation Alley, which I think is from a director or writer that we had recently. I can't remember now. Darlan Flugel was Nanelia. She played a character in the MacGyver pilot. Uh, she's the woman who gets shot trying to protect a scientist in the underground laboratory. Yeah. Um, she's also Ruth Lanier in To Live and Die in L.A. She plays Eve in Once Upon a Time in America. Anna Costanzo in Running Scared. She was Renee Hollow in Pet Cemetery 2, which is the woman who, in a dream sequence, is having sex with the dad and then suddenly has a wolf head. 
Do you remember that scene in? Uh, have you ever seen Pet Cemetery Two? I don't know if I've ever seen Pet Cemetery Two. It's uh, it's great. Uh, Doctor Bridget Thorne in Dark Man Three, Die Dark Man Die. So it's another appearance from her. Sybil Danning was Saint X Men. She plays a girl skier in Meteor. She played Charlotte in How to Beat the High Cost of Living earlier this year. She'll be back for The Man with Bogart's Face and Night Kill later this year. She was also Sturba, the immortal werewolf queen in Howling yeah. 2, Your Sister is a Werewolf, <laughs> which is probably why she was also cast as Gretchen Krupp in Rob Zombie's Grindhouse trailer, Werewolf Women of the SS. Uh, Rob Zombie also cast her as a nurse in his first Halloween movie. Sam Jaffe was Dr. Hephaestus. He plays Professor Jacob Barnhart in The Day the Earth Stood mm-hmm. Still, Bookman in Bedknobs and Broomsticks, Simonides in Ben-Hur. He's Old Waitley in The Dunwich Horror, and he plays Gungadin in yeah. Gungadin. Gungadin, probably not the most racially sensitive movie. Oh, but probably not. <laughs> considering he's in in brown face. Yeah. I think uh, we had a Gungadin joke in Those Lips, Those Eyes when uh, when he brings them all the props and he's like, you've done enough Gungadin or something <laughs> like that. Uh, Morgan Woodward was Cayman. He plays Boss Godfrey and Cool Hand Luke and a lot of TV roles. Uh, Earl Bowen was Nestor number one. Yeah. He's Dr. Silberman in Terminators 1, 2, and 3, presumably after having met James Cameron on the set of this film. Uh, he's also Dr. Eisendraff in Naked Gun 33 and a third, or Eisendraff, Dr. Eisendraff. Uh, he has a lot of voice acting credits. In- he's, uh, including I, a Captain video game, LeChuck. Captain from LeChuck the from the Monkey Island, Island movies or games. Um, is he in all of them or... No, because the, the first two games didn't have any voice. Um, in fact, that's one of the jokes. If you go into the settings, yeah. there's uh, to have the text spoken, but it's like grayed out. You can't check it. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> um, it was His voice was introduced in the third game, but I believe he did revoice himself because they, they got all the voice cast to come back for the special editions of Monkey Island 1 and 2. And and I think he was in the fourth one, too. Correct. Um but he also does a lot of World of Warcraft voices. And he, on Kim Possible, he was the voice of Senior, Senior, Senior. Or Senior, Senior, Senior. Yeah, because Senior, Senior was Ricardo Montalban. Yeah, and this is Ricardo Montalban's father was Senior, Senior, Senior. Lawrence Stephen Myers was Kelvin, one of the one of the Kelvin. Uh, he played Littleface and Dick Tracy. He was a producer on Return of the Living Dead 3, Unfaithful, and the TV movie The Librarian Quest for the Spear. All right. Which I think was from Electric. <laughs> yeah, um, my former employer. <laughs> yeah. uh, Laura Cody was the other Kelvin. And speaking of Akira, Laura provides the voice of Kay in the American dub of Akira. Hmm. And she also does the voice of Sheeta in Castle in the Sky, Rosemary in Metal Gear Solid 2, and Dan in Vampire Hunter D. Jeff Corey was Zed. He plays Cass Bay in Beneath the Planet of the Apes. He's Tom Chaney in True Grit, Sheriff Bledsoe in Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, and Wild Bill Hickok in Little Big Man. Oddly enough, Beneath the Planet of the Apes also features a Nestor-like race of people who mind control people to kill themselves. Nice. Uh, Richard Davalos played Yago, which is one of the Malmori, um, the people on Sater's ship. He is the father of Alyssa Davalos who we had earlier this year as the love interest in Herbie Goes Bananas. Also, Kathy Griffin is credited here as an alien extra, or I guess uncredited, but uh, apparently she's in this movie. She's a comedian who people know, um, and she's in Pulp Fiction. 
Uh, that's everybody I had for the cast. Well, I wanted to bring up uh, Marta Kristen, who played Lux, who was the girl that the cowboy was interested in. Oh, okay. Um, she was the original Judy on Lost in Space. Oh, okay. Um, and she appeared in the um, the Lost in Space movie, not the t- newer TV series, but the the movie that came out right. with Lacey Chabert and Gary Matt, Oldman. Uh, uh, Joey Tribbiani, wasn't he in there? Yeah, I think so. What's his name? <laughs> Matt LeBlanc. Matt LeBlanc. She just played a, a small part, just like June Lockhart did in that movie, but uh, but she was in it. That's cool. So she was the original Judy, you said? Correct. So does that mean it was like a Roseanne situation? No, 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 but they... I mean like, you know, I don't want to say she was Judy in Lost okay. in Space. I guess she I was best... Judy on the full original series. Yeah, that's what okay. I guess that would be the better way to phrase it. Just wanted to make sure she didn't get, you know, Family Matters mommed. Yeah. Somewhere in there. <laughs> or, or Sarah Chalked. <laughs> Sarah Chalked that one up, too. Yeah. Uh, or or Lacey Chabert, <laughs> oddly enough, bringing up Lacey Chabert. What again. was what was she? Family Guy. She was the original Meg. Oh right, just for the first season. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then they replaced her with Mila Kunis. Yeah, this is a fun movie. Um, it's a little silly, and for a Corman movie, I was expecting more boobs than it had, <laughs> which was just about none. Just um, just two two big yeah. naked spaceship <laughs> boobs. Just... <laughs> ship boobs that's all we had saint x-men kind of i was wondering where her nipples were because her outfit was kind of just like crisscrossy straps across her boobs and there were no nipples visible i think there was just a skin tone fabric underneath yeah no i think there was but i mean it was supposed to i mean i guess she's an alien so who knows where if they got nipples i heard she has three navels (laughs) (laughs) um (laughs) uh thank you for making a joke (laughs) but yeah um no, I, th- I think it's fun. The pacing is good uh, because they have to cram a lot of stuff into a small amount of time. The The models for the ships I thought were actually great. Yeah. Um, and, you know, for the budget that they had, I think the special effects are decent. I mean, we they reused a lot of, of footage of these spaceships firing at one another. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but... I think that there is a lot to be said about the uniqueness designs of each of the ships. Mm-hmm. Like, I feel like each of the ships, like, okay, they all have their kind of own little personalities. Although Sater's ship looks like a cross between a Star Destroyer and a Corellian Corvette. Yeah. Because um, it's got that hammerhead front. And that's what they called it, the hammerhead ship. Yeah. When they were making it. And then the, uh, what is the name of Shad's ship? Uh, I guess just Nell. It's just Nell, yeah. Um, but they specifically, like... I think it was his intention to make it look like, you know, it's basically space ovaries um, <laughs> that that James Cameron did that on purpose because he wanted for the voice to not just be female, but for the whole ship to like be embodied by a feminine, a, a feminine aura. I liked that the, like I said before, the Nestor ship felt like a completely different kind of sci-fi movie mm-hmm. where it was glowing the whole time. And then you have, uh, you know, the, Gelt's ship was you don't really see much of it yeah it's just like a well and they all have like their own weird like Gelt's I feel I feel bad sometimes too for like actors who have to play with weird controls oh and in, the like inside of Gelt's ship was the cheapest of yeah because it was all the I'm looking at the soundproofing foam that we have in yeah. this room that was yeah. all lining Gelt's <laughs> ship um but then the controls were like the like ape hangers like on a big uh, yeah, Chopper Harley, you know, kind of thing. Like, um, but then Cowboy was, was like a tiny little like PlayStation Four controller dangling from the ceiling. And yeah, his firing button was like this thing on a cord. Yeah, and he had no way of aiming. So it's just like, 
how are these actors supposed to work with this but stuff? None but... of them looked as uncomfortable as St. X-Men's ship. Yeah. Where it looked like someone, like like a fat person sat in the cockpit once and broke her chair. Yeah. So she has to lay down into it. Because <laughs> she's like at a 30 degree angle the whole time mm-hmm. laying flat back. Well, with that ridiculous headdress, I have a sneaky suspicion that she couldn't turn her head at all in that thing without whacking it on the so chair. They kept, they're like, what if we tip you further still. back? Does this look weird? Yeah. Yeah, it does. <laughs> She looks like she's strapped to like a gurney or something. Yeah, but it looked very uncomfortable to oh, film in. And and like Nell's manual control, this thing that bobbles out in front of him, and he every time it comes out, Shad thinks it looks like Shad's gonna be hit with it, and he yeah. kind of goes uh as this thing comes. Still, out. that ship looked the biggest on the inside, though. Like there was room to walk around inside of Nell. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, where when you see them from outside, all the ships are about the same size. Well, yeah. Seder's ship is huge, though. Right. But yeah. I like his controls because they're just those like. Uh, electric yeah. balls like what are those called where where it's like the yeah it's just a circle the electric a current like jumps to where your hand is on the outside yeah, yeah, as yeah. you touch them but they were just sunken into the dash yeah <laughs> that's all it was like fire and he's just smacking this crystal ball yeah <laughs> yeah they're they're weird but uh some of the, some of them had a lot more work put into them than others but i also really liked the way that saint x-men's ship moved around mm-hmm. like when he was like screw it i'm just gonna kill this person (laughs) like he's like the ultimate pacifist he doesn't want to do anything to anybody but now he's like i'm just gonna destroy this lady i feel like he's kind of because because on akir he's he's basically amish Mm -hmm. that he's like on rumspringa now that's why he was like (laughs) "Mm, i get to murder people for a couple weeks and it's okay i can just take whatever drugs people hand me out of machines well Uh, to be fair he didn't set out to be like that like when when he first encounters somebody that he ought to shoot because he's being attacked like nell has to take over and totally disregard his you know quaker way of life that's true um i also like when uh, when he dismisses her the first time, he's and Nell was like kind of like objecting to it, and he goes, "She was just toying with me." He's like, "Yeah," and she won. <laughs> yeah. Um, up or down? I'm gonna give it an up. I, I do think too. that it's it's one of those. It's bad. It's so bad. It's it's great. Yeah, I I think it was it was pretty much pure fun. Um, it could have been crazier than it was, but it might have been too expensive. But I enjoyed it. Um, I've always enjoyed this movie for a very long time. Uh, I uh, one of the, it was like when I saw this was on the list, I couldn't have been more excited. <laughs> Crack out your Blu-ray. Yeah, I was just like, yes, please, <laughs> Battle Beyond the Stars. Uh, I understand it's silly and it's goofy and it's budgeted and all that stuff. I uh, I don't know. It just this was just one of those movies that I just remember growing up with. Uh, so I definitely give it an up. Uh, whether or not I would recommend this movie, there's definitely groups of people like <laughs> yeah, like Pat McGrath. I would totally recommend he, he watch this movie. Yeah, um, but uh, not many other people. <laughs> I don't know. I think anybody that I'm friends with, I would recommend this to because I think as long as you preface it with it's just a really bad Star Wars ripoff that Roger Corman made, then people yeah. will be like, I know exactly what that means. Mm-hmm. I would love to see that. Yeah. Um. Yeah. I think it's great big thumbs up um where's this going on your list richard um uh, actually it's funny because um uh where i have this is right next to another john sales and right next to another roger corman uh so i or actually no actually that's not roger corman i'm sorry uh well anyway uh i have it just below alligator and just above galaxina okay jessica 
Um, yeah, so this, I, I, I feel like this is a, a def- defining spot in my list. This is right at the bottom of the movies in my list that I would watch anytime you said, hey, we're going to watch one of these movies. And I'm like, this is right at the bottom of that that list of movies for the year for me. Yeah. So it's it's about at about 49th place right now. It's just below Xanadu and just above Nijinsky. So I would not watch Nijinsky if you offered that to me, but I would totally <laughs> watch Battle Beyond the Stars again. Um, I actually have it in 60th place, although I did enjoy it. Um, and like you, it's very near Xanadu. It's right above Xanadu. And for me, it's just under Raise the Titanic which is actually just two below Alligator. So it's pretty close to Alligator and Xanadu where you both had it. So kind of on the same page. It's in the same like fun, ridiculous section of my list um, of movies that I would for sure watch. I don't think that a John Sayles movie could possibly go anywhere in the bottom half for the year. I feel like there's no matter no matter what, there he's just a good enough writer that it will always be riding that high. Um, but yeah, I think that's everything for this one. If you guys have any thoughts you'd like to share with us, we are Vintage Video Pod on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Letterboxd. Whereas I've said before, you can find each of our full movie rankings for the year. We can also be found at VintageVideoPodcast.com. Please consider rating us on iTunes to help people find the show. And if you take the time to leave us a review, we will thank you personally in an upcoming episode. If you're feeling especially generous, you can also support the show through Patreon.com slash VintageVideoPodcast. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time when we'll be discussing Phobia, which IMDb describes like so. A psychiatrist involved in a radical new therapy comes under suspicion when his patients are murdered, each according to their individual phobias. We leave you now with the trailer for Phobia. You're lost. Everyone looks strange to you. They are prisoners of their own nightmares. That's you. You'll face your phobia head on. They are tormented by their own fears. You're running for your life, Laura. Don't touch me! They are trapped by their own terrors. Look up. There's no one with the child. And they are about to become the victims of a killer who has discovered the perfect murder weapon. The human mind. Was it an accident or suicide? Of course, as far as I'm concerned, the prime suspects are your experimentee. Be careful. Let's be careful. Four out of five patients in this project are dead. Now the deaths must link up somehow. 